Go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be spending our time today. And uh, if you've been with us in our study through Romans, we've made pretty quick, uh, a pretty quick jump through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And now in chapter 12, we're going to slow way down again uh, as we get into Romans chapter 12. We're only going to go through a couple of verses uh, together today. Have you ever had a time in your life where you wondered what is the will of God? I'm like, huh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's all the time. I mean, maybe even right now, you're in the middle of a season or a decision or a time or some circumstances where you're wondering, God, what is your will? What do you want for me? What's God's will in this, you know, fill in the blank <clears throat> in my life? And it can be hard enough to try to figure that out, but it gets even more complicated and more difficult when you start to consider uh, different possible choices of things, and none of them are bad choices. When you have lots of good choices, that's when it's even harder and even more difficult to figure out what to do uh, with your, um, uh, you know, with, with God's will. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. I forgot to tell you, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some Bibles for you. Uh, also, you can open up the Version Bible app and follow along there as well. Uh, so uh, make sure you open up there to Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 2. So, so what do we do? What do we do when we have these choices before us, these options before us, these decisions and situations before us, and we're trying to figure out what is God's will. And it's a good thing that God doesn't leave us in the dark on this. He actually tells us what it is that we need to do, exactly how to know his will. That's what we're going to be looking at together today. And so here's our big idea. The will of God is revealed to those who are submitted to God. The will of God is revealed to those who are submitted to God as we look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. So let's read those two verses together and then we'll uh, go through and break it down. It says this, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to open your word and to be able to study it. And we pray that you would speak to us, God, that you would show us what it is that you have to tell us through uh, the, these, these verses that you've penned for us. God, thank you that you have given us not just uh, this idea of um, a connection with you in this sort of supernatural, um, uh, emotional kind of a way, but you've also given to us your word so that we can be sure that we know what it is that you're saying and the things that you do. God, thank you for the way that you've communicated so clearly, and we pray that you would give us understanding. Show us how we can draw near to you, and we can understand you, and we can be, as your word tells us here, our minds can be transformed. We pray that that work would be done today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 12 one through two breaks down as we're going to look at it together in three parts. All right, we're going to look at it in three pieces today. Uh, verse one, a body offered to God. The first part of chapter, uh, verse two, a mind transformed by God. And then uh, the second part of verse two, a will established in God. Now, Romans 12 
begins a brand new division in the book of Romans. When we started the book of Romans uh, a few months ago, we started with this idea that we're going to divide it into some pieces, some different parts. And we looked at these different parts and we said that the first one was going to be the introduction, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The second division, the wrath of God, verse 118, all the way through 320. And the third division being the grace of God, verse chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through 839. The fourth division being the plan of God, chapters 9 through 11. And now here we are today in the fifth division of the book of Romans, the will of God, verse chapters 12 through 15. So that's where we're starting today is this new uh, sort of um, uh, focus on the will of God. And that's what we're looking at throughout the, this section in chapters 12 through 15. Now the focus here in chapter 12 shifts away from being primarily theological to being primarily practical. It's not that we don't have theology in this. It's just that the focus isn't theological, whereas the first 11 chapters, the focus is almost exclusively theological. It's, this is the stuff you got to know. And then as we get to there, now it's what do we do with what do we know? So let's look at this first part together uh, in verse one, a body offered to God. Read verse one with me again. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now here we have this fourth therefore in the book of Romans. As we've gone through Romans, there's been a series of therefores and, and we've, we've noted along the way as we've come across these that each one of them is like uh, tying concepts together. We're taking the previous thoughts and we're tying, together, tying them together with a new thought and, and this is the bridge that brings it together. And, and in Romans, this marks a massive shift in chapter 12 as, it emphasized, uh, as it's emphasized with the phrase or the word beseech. Now, I don't know the last time you've said beseech. I don't know when you said, you've, you've told someone that you beseech them about something. Maybe you said to your wife, I beseech you, please make something amazing for dinner tonight. Or maybe your wife doesn't cook and you're the one that cooks and she said that to you. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know when the last time you used that word it was, but we, it's just not a modern term, right? It's not something that we say. You don't, you don't hear somebody beseeching you all the time. And so here, the modern equivalent would be something like I'm begging you. Would you, would you just please get what I'm saying? And so it's, it's like this urgency wrapped up within it. I'm begging you to grasp what I'm talking about. And so what is he begging us to do? What is he begging them to do? Well, that's not only is, is the therefore tied to beseech, but also look at the word after therefore, brethren. This is very specifically targeted toward Christian believers. This isn't just something that is for anybody and everybody to now try to figure out how, okay, I got the stuff. Now I got to figure out how to do it. And he's telling me what to do. And I'm just going to go through the motions of the doing. He's saying this is for those who are in Christ. And if you want to, if you want to know God's will, then this is primarily important. It's for brethren, for the believers uh, in Christ to take action in chapters 12 through 15. It's basically the so what that follows after chapters 1 through 11. Once you understand what's taking place in Romans 1 through 11, then it's the so what? I mean, why, why does that matter? Why is that such a big deal to me? Why should I do anything with this at all? And the truth of the matter is that learning must be revealed in living. That what we're doing isn't simply academic, it's also athletic. 
that we want to actually do something with what we're learning. Otherwise, we're just going through religious motions and, and doing really nothing for ourselves. We're just kind of learning some facts and some trivia instead of actually being conformed into the image of God. James 1.22 says it like this, but don't uh, just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. There's a self-deception that can take place where I think that just because I heard God's word, just because I learned some theology, just because I went to a Bible college, just because I heard a preacher, just because I've read the whole Bible, now that's all I need to do. That, that encapsulates and incorporates everything that there is within the Christian life. And that's, that, that's just not true. There's got to be something more that the, the learning results in living. Now, before getting into it, Paul ties the activities of God to, notice there in verse 1, by the mercies of God. So the things that you're going to do are tied to this phrase, the mercies of God. And really what that phrase is, is it's an encapsulation of the truths that have been laid out for us in Romans up to this point. It's 11 chapters of theology that he's referencing. It's this sort of uh, one term to reference all of that stuff. And the, here's the big principle that we've got to get out of this is that application flows from theology. That, that right learning produces right living. But we've got to get that correct. We've got to get that established in the right order. You see, to start with application and then search for a theology to apply it might sometimes lead you in the right direction, but most often it'll lead you the wrong way. Most, uh, in fact, many times it's produced entire theologies that are heresy. They've led people away from God, not toward God, because they started with an application and then searched for something in the Bible to meet the application. That what this is, even by the way that Romans lays out, it shows us the exact opposite. You do the learning and then you apply the learning, which is why we go through the Bible the way we do here at Redemption, which is why we're so devoted to what's called expository teaching. Because we first want to expose what the Bible says, expository, expose what the Word of God says, and then say, because we know what this says, what does this mean? How does this affect us? What does this do for us and in us and through us. You see, application flows from theology, not the other way around. And so what is the theology? I mean, what, are we, what did we go over? Well, just a brief, quick recap of what we've been through in the book of Romans is this, that the first three chapters essentially tells us that we're all condemned. All of humanity have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And yet in that, even though we're, we have all condemned, we can all be made righteous through Jesus. That though we're condemned as sinners, we can be made righteous through Jesus. And chapter 4 shows us that justification is possible for us by faith in Jesus. And remember, Abraham was the example of that. Abraham was justified by faith, and so too we can experience that justification, that we're declared as holy and righteous as Jesus is um, be, because of faith in him. In chapter 5, we see that we are given access to God, meaning in life, hope in, of heaven, the hope of heaven, all because of Jesus. That, that he gives us all of these things in our lives. Access to God, meaning in life, and the hope of heaven. In chapter 6 through 8, we saw that we are freed slaves that have been adopted by God 
in Jesus, that it's his blood, it's his, um, his life given for us, his death, burial, and resurrection that brings us this adoption. And then chapters 9 through 11, we saw that God is faithful to Israel and he'll be faithful to me by Jesus. That the whole thing's about Jesus and really it's all unveiling this theological, uh, these theological concepts that establish us in our faith in the Lord. And all of that is encapsulated by this phrase, the mercies of God. When he says the mercies of God, he's referencing all of those things that we've all already covered. And I think it's important for us when we think about the mercies of God, not to just think about it in terms of, uh, of dry theology. Can't, isn't it easy to, to do that? You know, it's a systematic theology book or, you know, we think about justification and glorification and sanctification and there's theology words and, and it can be very dry. It can be very sterile. But I think it's important for us to not only think of it that way, but to also think of it in terms of personally. Like how have the mercies of God affected your individual life? I remember, you know, for me, just as I think across my life and I think of the mercies of God and how he's dealt with me. And there was, you know, as a teenager, I was uh, just living for myself and openly rebellious against the things of God and pursuing my own life the way that I wanted to. And then one day on December 5th, 1997, God reached into my heart as a, as a senior in high school and he said, I want you to be saved the mercies of God. It's the mercies of God. And then, and then God, after trying to find you know, a church here and there and, and trying to figure out where God was going to have me land, I landed at this little, little church called White Mountain Bible Church uh, in Sholo, Arizona. And uh, uh, there's a faithful pastor there who opened God's word, much like what we're doing today. And he just taught through the scriptures. He loved the people of the church. He loved me. He loved the word of God and he was faithful to teach it. And, and the fact that I was able to find that church is the mercies of God, that God led me there. And then as I was considering, God, what are you going to do with me? And I felt this pull toward ministry and I started thinking about where am I going to go to school? And I started researching all these different Bible colleges and, and trying to figure it out. I ended up at this, this, uh, this college I'd never even heard of uh, called Calvary Chapel Bible College. And I wasn't even associated with Calvary Chapels. And I, it was a friend of a friend who knew about this. And, and I, was, I started looking into it and started being led there. And that two years that I spent at CCBC was the, what I would call the most formative two years of my Christian experience. It transformed my life in ways that nothing else ever had ha, uh, up to that point and has since. And that's the, that's the mercies of God. He led me there. It was by the mercies of God that I was led there. And, and somehow, uh, as I graduate from, uh, from Bible college and I, you know, uh, I have this, this amazing woman in my life Jesus somehow tricked her into marrying me. And that's, if you know us, you know that's the mercies of God. And he's given us four beautiful, amazing, godly daughters that love and serve Jesus. That is the mercies of God. That's not because we're awesome parents. It's because of the mercies of God. It's stuff that God does, you know? And, and I think about all of those things. And I, I think about how in 2014, we start this little home Bible study, moving a thousand miles and, and thinking, well, who's going to come to this? And, and somehow he's planted, Jesus has planted a church that we're, we get to be a part of today at, at Redemption. It's the mercies of God. It's all the mercies of God. And so we've got to be careful to see this, not just as the stuff that's over there, but the stuff that God's doing in my life. And I, I bet you, I, I, I would, I'd be willing to bet that as I explain some of these things that I've gone through, you can identify that in your life as well. 
where God has met you, where God has, has come through for you, where God has shown up in this, this overly merciful way to take care of you or to lead you or to give you that nudge in the right direction when you needed it. You see, if you want to know the will of God, you got to start somewhere that seems a little bit, a little bit obscure, maybe even a little bit disconnected. And, and as he gets all of this, all of this is build up. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. It seems a little obscure, but if you want to know the will of God, you start with submitting your body to God. It's, it, doesn't, it seems kind of weird. Like, what, what are we talking about here? How, how am I going to get there from here? Well, notice it says, present your bodies uh, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, that word present... It's a technical term that's actually related to the Levitical priesthood. So when he's talking about, when it says present, what he's talking about is the way that priests in the Old Testament, they would take these animals and then they would prepare, the, they would kill the animal, they would prepare the animal, they'd take some of the parts, they'd put it on the altar and then it would be burned up and consumed as an offering before God. When he says present, it's that sort of process by which the priest would do all those things and lay the, the offering on the altar. And what, what he's saying here is that you need to take your body and do the same thing that the priest would do, that your body is presented that way. Um, and, and in this, essentially what he's saying is that the only right response to God's great mercy in your life is to give him an offering. And the only right offering is your absolute everything. There's nothing that, that comes short of your absolute everything that's even worthy to be offered to the Lord. There, there's, it's got to be absolutely everything. Now, in the Old Testament, they would give a, a dead offering, right? You, you can cut parts off the animal and burn it up without it dying. Uh, but in the New Testament here, notice it's a living sacrifice. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. God's not saying that we need to all you know, drink the Kool-Aid as, as has been stated in the past by some. What he's saying is that we need to actually give ourselves as a living sacrifice, which means not in my death, but in my life, my very breath, the very thing I'm doing in every moment of every day, all of the things that are attached to my life are all offered to him. But here's the problem with, with a living sacrifice. It can crawl off the altar, right? That's the problem. You ever experienced that? Where you're like, God, you can have all of me. God, that my whole life is given to you. Uh, everything is yours. And then you get distracted and you find yourself wandering off over here doing something else. And then you realize, oh man, I'm not, I'm not really doing, okay, God, my life is, re I'm rededicating my life to you. And, and there's a sense in which that's not necessarily bad. That's part of the human experience. But there's a, another sense in which that is not supposed to be the way that it is, right? This whole idea of the presentation of the priest, it's a, it's a one-time thing. It's a final kind of a thing. And so we need to approach it from the perspective of saying, God, I'm giving you my everything. And, and this is a lifelong kind of a commitment that I'm in and that, that there's, there's no going back. The, the kind of commitment that I make to my wife. That I, it's not like, well, I'm, I'm in as long as you make me happy and you, you, know, you, know, you make me food and then we can be friends. Because if you've had my wife's food, it's amazing. She knows what she's doing. Uh, it's, it's definitely a spiritual gift. But the thing is that we tend to approach God in this way of like, well, I mean, I'm sort of in. And what Paul's calling us toward is if you want to know God's will, you got to be all in with Jesus. It can't be this half in, half out, half, halfway there, I'll sort of 
go for the Lord, but not really. You see, the spiritual emphasis, because of the spiritual emphasis of Christianity, we tend to ignore or downplay the importance of our bodies, that our physical body. The, the truth is that you're a triune being made in the image of God. God is triune, right? We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're a triune being as well. You have mind, you have body, and you have spirit. And we have a, a tendency because things are so spiritual and because what we're doing right now is even an act of learning that's more mental, we have a tendency to downplay the physical aspects of things within our lives and to say, well, that doesn't really matter so much. But the, the truth is, uh, the, what we're being told and what's being presented is we need to actually offer our bodies. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 talks about this and it says this in verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price so you must honor God, notice, with your body. There's a, there is a, an emphasis in Scripture upon your body. And the reason is because you cannot do something to one part of yourself that doesn't affect the rest of you. Anybody ever been hangry? You're like, I am right now. Stop talking so I can go get some food. Right? That, that's, you, 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 get, you get irrational and emotional and even sometimes mean. Why? Because you're hungry, because of a physical thing that's happening within you. Uh, you ever had emotions that overcame you so much that you physically were sick? That, that, that can happen as well. That you are, uh, you are intimately tied together in your body and in your mind and in your spirit. You cannot do something to one part that doesn't affect the rest, which is one of the huge lies that, that's being told in the abortion industry. What they're trying to tell people is that it's just a clump of cells. No, that's actually a child. That's, that's, a, that's a person. And what they're trying to say is you can get rid of the clump of cells and it won't do anything to you. And the fact is it's plunging people into despair and hopelessness because they think they can disconnect their body from their mind and their spirit. And you cannot. You cannot. You can't do that. And so the truth of the matter is that we are intimately connected and tied together and our bodies matter a lot. If you abuse or misuse your body, it's going to limit or hinder or even render you useless to the things of the Lord, the stuff that God has for you to do. That we have to take care of our bodies. We have to be careful to give attention to our bodies in a way that is honorable to God. And so we're given two qualifiers for this type of sacrifice. What does it mean when I sacrifice my body? I place my body on the altar before the Lord. How do I do it? Well, there's two things. Notice there in verse one, which is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. The idea of holy is the, the concept of sacred. Uh, it's something set apart. It's something that is not used for uh, common purposes. And so what this is telling us is that when I offer my body to God, it's, I'm saying, God, I'm not gonna use my body for sinful purposes, but I'm not gonna use it for sinful kinds of things. Now, I'm also not going to use it to be religiously abused. That, that, that's also tied up in that. That's, uh, there are people who think that, you know, they have to somehow beat themselves up and torture their bodies because their bodies are so evil and prone towards sinfulness as if somehow that's going to cause them to become more holy or acceptable before God. And, and so this encapsulates that concept as well, that we're not going to use our bodies for sinful purposes. We're not going to religiously abuse our bodies. We're going to see our bodies as a gift of God and as an instrument to be used for his glory. 
that my body is this thing that I'm able to use that interacts with this world. It's your, it's your user interface, if you want to call it that, uh, that you use it to interact with this world. And so you're going to use it for his glory. And the second qualifier that we have is not only holy, but also acceptable. You see that there? Acceptable. This is the idea of well-pleasing. That's what acceptable means. Maybe even your translation even says well-pleasing. And this is kind of saying everything else. The, the idea of holy is set apart to say not sinful. But the idea of acceptable is kind of like anything else that you could do with your body as, as far as life goes. It's, it's the idea of uh, physical health being a spiritual sacrifice to God. That, that I look at the way I care for my body and it's, it's not just a physical thing. That the way I eat, the way I exercise, the way I rest, the way I have recreation, the way I treat my body is actually an offering to God. That, I, that I'm, I'm sacrificing to him by the way that I treat my body. That's this, it's this spiritual thing that's taking place. It's not just a physical thing. Skip Heidsick says it like this. So your body uh, and my body can be a base of operations for God to work through. He wants to touch the world through you. That this is God's focus. This is God's intent. This is God's plan. That he wants to actually use you in your body to touch the world. You see, we don't worship our body through indulgence, overindulging our body in whatever way that that might be, overeating or sexual sin or whatever. We don't worship our body in indulgence. We don't worship our body in exaltation, lifting it up and, and saying, look how pretty my body is. And I really like this, this part about my body, all those kinds of things. We don't worship our body that way. And then we also don't worship our body uh, through the idea of deprivation, that we don't starve it, we don't beat it up, we don't try to just make it feel bad and, and think that that somehow causes us to be holy as well. What we do with our body is we steward it as worship to God. So, so let me ask you a question. Think about this for a minute. How's that going? How's that going with your body? I think if we were honest, our body plays, uh, it, it controls us a lot more than we control it. It, it directs our paths, our appetites, our hungers, our physical wants control our lives a lot more than we might be willing to admit. And, and what Paul is pointing us toward here in verse one is to say, your body matters a lot more than you think it does. And the reason you're having trouble with your body has very little to do with physical discipline. It has a lot more to do with mental and spiritual discipline. It's because you're undisciplined mentally and spiritually. It shows up in your body. That's what it's talking about. That's what he's pointing at for us here today. Now, most people will call this a radical way of thinking, but notice the way that he calls it there in verse one. It's your reasonable service. To think of your body this way is not radical. It's reasonable. It's, it's just what you should do. It's just the way that you should think about and treat your body. It's not radical. Giving your all to God is not too much. It's not too extreme even down to and including your body. All right, so not only do we have a body offered to God, but we have a mind transformed by God in verse two, the first part of verse two. Notice it says there, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The second part of how to know God's will is not just that your body is offered to God, but you have to have a submitted mind to God. Not just a submitted physical body, but a submitted mind. Physical devotion 
can reveal areas of mental rebellion. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Where, you know, when you, I remember when I first came to the Lord, I first got saved, I noticed that my sin had to do with a lot of stuff that I was doing. There were these things I was doing, these words I was saying, these activities I was participating in, this stuff that was all out here, and that was where all my sin was. And then as I matured and, grew, and was able to develop and grow in the Lord, I realized that there was a lot more sin going on in here than there was going on out there. I thought it was all outside, and, and, and I thought, you know, I'm doing pretty good when I started to chop down all of those bad things that I shouldn't be doing and start to add some other good things that I should be doing. And, and I thought that because the sin out there wasn't happening as frequently that I was doing great until I realized, you know what, there's actually a lot more corruption inside than there is on the outside. And actually the inside is what shows the outside. You see, maturity sees the inside, not just the outside. And so what we're given here, the first part of uh, verse two, is a two-part trait. He says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't, don't let yourself be conformed, but instead be transformed. It's a negative that we reject and a positive that we embrace. See the word conformed there? Uh, what this is talking about, this concept of, of being conformed, is that there's a constant, heavy, and intense pressure coming at you from all sides at all times to try to get you to just fit in. That's what's happening. Since you've felt this since the moment you were born, you've been in this this, uh, system since the day that you you were conceived, that, that there's been this pressure on you to get you to just fit in. You just go with the flow. And even a dead fish can go with the flow, right? It just floats downstream, right? It takes something alive and something that has that, this uh, intent to go the other direction. And so, so what we're being called to is not being conformed. Well, conformed to what? It says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, when, he's, when, when we're, told, we're talking about world, there's three potentials for the concept of world. One could mean the planet, you know, uh, the dirt, the earth, the sky, all those kinds of things. One could mean the people. You know how it says in uh, John 3.16 that God so loved the world. It's not the, the, it's not the dirt that, that God was, was loving. It's the people that God was loving. And the third one is the idea of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the idea of, the system of things that is against God. The stuff that's in this world that is a, an organized system of, of thinking and believing and, and people and all of these things that are actively against the things of God. And so when he says the world, what he's talking about is that system. That there's a system that is, is trying to cram you into the way that it wants you to look, it wants you to think, it wants you to act, it wants you to talk, that there's a way that the world is trying to shove you into its mold. And the scary thing is, it works. It works. The world is pressuring us constantly to be like everybody else, to be like the world. And, and the, the, the fact is that when the church is indistinguishable from the world, we forfeit our power, our ministry, and our witness. When the church just looks just like the world, 
When we do what the world does, when we think the, world, the way the world thinks, when, we, when church uh, is not a, a time to meet with God and to worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him, instead it's an entertaining talk and maybe some concert that's going on, which I'm not, I'm not against lights, I'm not against sound systems, I'm not against technology, I'm not against any of those things, but when it, when it is indistinguishable from the world and nothing different is happening, then we are losing our power as the church. When we in our individual lives, not just gathering together, when we in our lives are indistinguishable from the world, if, if people can't look at you and know you are different, then you've lost your power, you've lost your witness, you've lost your ministry in this world that God wants to use you for. You see, we're told that we need to be in the world, but not of the world. It's what Jesus spoke about. It's one of the things I think about is... we. We, we just actually went over this in our life groups. So our life groups are traveling through Genesis. Right now, it's been an awesome, epic study. If, you, if you're not in life group, I would just encourage you. It is so good. You got to jump in. So we're traveling through Genesis. And this, this past uh, week, uh, we were in the section in, in uh, Genesis 19 that talks about Lot. And Lot's, you know, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed by, you know, uh, fire and brimstone raining down from heaven kind of a thing. These angels destroy uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're going through that. And something that's really weird and interesting is that 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8 talks about Lot being righteous. That righteous Lot was being tormented by the world or the system of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you read through the account in Genesis, you have a hard time coming up with Lot being righteous. You have an easier time of going, bro, was jacked up. Like, what? Why did you do some of the things that you did? There's some crazy things taking place. I mean, Lot offered his daughters to be raped by a homosexual mob. Lot had to be dragged out of the city by the angels because he wouldn't just leave. Uh, he wouldn't go where the angels told him to go. They were like, hey, you got to go to the mountains. He's like, well, I don't really feel like going to the mountains. It's kind of, kind of scary, kind of far. Can I go to this other town? I'd rather go over there. Uh, he does that. Uh, Lot's wife looked back at the city uh, longingly toward the city, and so she ends up turning into a, a pillar of salt. Uh, later on, Lot's daughters actually get him drunk and sleep with him in order to have kids. Like this is a crazy, insane chapter of scripture. And then you read in, in uh, uh, you know, Second Peter that righteous Lot was was corrupt or was in this place where the world was was tormenting him. And so you're like, what is going on? Here's the way that it works. There's a couple of things. One is that God is so gracious that He can look at our lives. And you might look at your life and, and sort of rose color it, make it look all nice and pretty and you know, forget all about the, all the bad things. And you're like, look, my life's pretty good. But God looks at your life and he sees all of the stuff that's like Lot. And he still counts you as righteous. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. That's how amazing God is. Here's another thing that, that's applicable to this. That though Lot was righteous, how much of an effect did he have on anybody around him? None, not even his own family. His wife rejected the Lord. His kids were in, in utter rebellion against the things of God and gross sin. And, and, and so Lot, though he was considered righteous, he had zero effect on his family. I would submit to you the reason why is because he was in the world and he was a little of the world. The world's mold, he was getting crammed into it. 
He wasn't experiencing what we're being told to experience here in, in, uh, in Romans. Jesus says it like this in John 17, 15. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. This is a prayer in, in John, uh, John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he's praying not only for his disciples then, but for you and me as well. And Jesus says, I'm not praying that you're taken out of the world. I'm praying that you're kept from the evil one. God has this amazing, crazy power and ability to sustain you. Here's, here's an analogy. I love this analogy. Here's a way that you can think about it. You ever notice that you take, when you catch fish and you know, you, you, you're going to, maybe you don't eat fish, but I like fish. So if you're going to eat fish, you know, you got to catch the fish and, and you, you, uh, you bring it and you, you know, prepare it all and everything. That one of the things that you have to do is you have to make sure that you salt your fish as you're seasoning your fish. Does that sound weird to you? That thing has lived in brine its entire life, right? The, whole, the fish has literally soaked in brine its entire life. And now I've got to salt it in order, to, in order to season it. How does that work? Well, the fish is in the salt water, but the salt didn't get into the fish. Does that make sense? That the, the Lord was able to sustain and preserve the fish. So too, even in this world, though it's difficult and though you have trouble, uh, the Lord is able to sustain you. Now notice there, not only don't be conformed, that's the negative, but the positive is be transformed. That Jesus doesn't want us to just fit in. That's not what he wants for you in your life. He doesn't want you to just fit in. The world is trying to cram you in so you just fit in and Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you to stand out. He wants, uh, his work is to get us to stand out. That in this upside down world, you stand right side up. That you are totally different than the way that everybody else is and the way that things are going. See, God's preservation power is not only to keep you from being shaped like the world, but also to, that word there, transform. The Greek word is metamorpho. Sound familiar? We get the word metamorphosis from that. The concept of metamorphosis, be, metamorphosis being that you take a caterpillar, goes into a chrysalis, and it comes out as a caterpillar, right? No. <laughs> no is the right answer. It comes out as a butterfly. It comes out as something totally different. So different that you wouldn't even think that's the same thing. It's, it's radically transformed because it is totally different. And so too it is with us in Jesus, that when we get in Christ, when we go in Jesus, it's entering into that chrysalis and that he takes us from who we were and turns us into who he wants us to be, that he transforms us, that we're not even anywhere near like we were before. It's like when I think about it and I tell my testimony of how I was before the Lord, it's like telling a story about somebody I don't even know. It's, it's like a, a story about somebody else, but it's me. But it's, I'm so radically different today that it's, it's like telling a story about somebody that I, I don't even know. It's like a story of, of some guy that I heard about. James 1.27 says this, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress, listen to this, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We don't need a cleaned up version of you. We need a changed version of you. Radically different redeemed, transformed, metamorphosized version of you. How does that happen? Well, how does that take place? Notice there, it says, don't be conformed into this world, but be transformed by, here's the how, the renewing of your mind. Transformation happens through 
information. That's the way transformation happens. Transformation happens through information. That's a big part of why we do what we do here in, in studying through the scriptures. You need to know God's word because as you know God's word, it changes the way that you think. Information has the power to change your entire mind. Here, here let me give you an example. Um, now, I, some of you are going to love this example and some of you are going to think I'm anathema. But the, the Harry Potter series, okay? This is movie series, Harry Potter series. Uh, in the Harry Potter series, there's a certain uh, uh, character and uh, his name is uh, Severus. And as you're watching, he's this weird guy that's always depicted as like a bad guy, the whole movie. He's like, he's, like, he's shady, kind of weird, doing weird stuff. And you're like, what is up with this guy? The whole series, he's a bad guy. And then you realize at the very, very end, he's actually not a bad guy. He's actually the hero. And though I gave it away. If you haven't watched Harry Potter yet, then like whatever. Um, at the very, very end of the movie, you realize he's... Like, if you haven't watched it yet, then who cares? Like, you've had years. You've had, I don't know what it is, like 10 or 12 years to watch this series. So, anyway. So he gets to the end, and, and you realize he's the hero. Now, here's the thing. The, the only thing that changed was information. He didn't change. The stuff he did along the way didn't change, but the way you saw it totally changed because of information. Information has massive power to change your mind. And the best information you need, the biggest amount of information you need is in your Bible. Do you want your mind to change? Do you want to think like Jesus? Do you want to be more like him? It, it has to do with how much of this you get in here. You're, you're not going to get the mind of God apart from the word of God. And so if you're spending a lot of time praying about this thing that you want or this stuff that you think should happen and, and, and you haven't consulted scripture and you're expecting God to speak to you, then you're expecting something crazy. Especially if the Bible, there's actually a verse that says that's sin and you're expecting God to change his mind. You're expecting something crazy. It's not going to happen. Here's how Warren Wiersbe says it on, in his commentary, be right. God's Go. God transforms our minds and makes us spiritually minded by using his word. As you spend time meditating on God's word, memorizing it and making it part of your inner being, God will gradually make your mind more spiritual. In some ways it happens instantaneously, but for the most part, it's a gradual, slight change over time. That God changes your mind to be more like his which I've said before, and I'll say it again because it bears repeating. This is why we're so devoted to the Bible. This is why we spend hours looking at it and studying it and considering it because it alone has the power to supernaturally change us. Not some guy's opinions about things. Now, opinions might be nice and maybe sometimes someone's opinions can have that ability to change your mind in certain ways, but not the way that you need in supernatural transformation like the word of God. You see, the, the opinions of men are nice, but they're actually powerless. It's vital to worship God with your mind. And Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Christians who aren't thinkers are abdicating their spiritual responsibility to worship God with our mind. God can handle your questions. God can handle your thinking. God can handle your, your frustrations over things. It's vital that Christians are critical 
thinkers. And there's a big difference between being a critical thinking, critical thinker, and thinking critically. Do you understand what I mean by that? Sometimes, sometimes people think that critical thinking means I go around and I complain about everything. Well, that's bad, and that's wrong, and I don't like that. No, you're just critical. That's not what I mean by that. You have to think critically, meaning that you're willing to ask the hard questions. You're willing to wrestle over your faith. You're willing to mentally engage. Christianity is not a mindless faith. The reason I believe in Jesus is because it makes the most sense out of everything else. You look at anything and everything else. Atheism doesn't make sense. Buddhism doesn't make sense. Mormonism doesn't make sense. Muslims and, and Hindu, uh, Islam doesn't make sense. Pick any, anything and mix them up and make, make your own religion. They just don't make sense. But when I think and I study through the scriptures and I actually apply my mind, Jesus makes more and more and more and more sense. We have to think and worship God with our minds. All right. Uh, thirdly and finally, a will established in God. Look at the second part of verse two. It says this, that uh, you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When your body is offered to God and your mind is transformed by him, then the result is that you will know the will of God and live in it. That's the result. That's what he says here. The natural flow is that when you are completely offered to God, you're all your body, all your mind, you're spiritually offered to the Lord, that everything about you is offered to the Lord, then you will know the will of God. A transformed mind produces a transformed will. A transformed mind produces a transformed will, and it happens in a very supernaturally natural way. And so if you're expecting to hear from God and to know his will by some sort of weird like thing to take place, then you are expecting something that's probably not going to happen. Yes, God does do things in some overt spiritual kind of ways from time to time, but if you're expecting God to move that way and to work that way, then you're gonna miss God moving and working because he almost exclusively works in supernaturally natural ways. God, what's your will? And I just want you to like drop something in front of me or make an explosion happen that shifts my whole life or whatever. Yes, God does that every once in a while, but for the most part, it's not what he does. He absolutely will work in supernaturally natural ways. Philippians 2.13 says it like this. For God, for it is God who works in you, listen, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What that says is that God will actually put his will inside of you. That's part of the work of God. That he'll change your mind so that you'll have his. That's what God literally does. Alexander McLaren says in his uh, commentary, uh, to know beyond a doubt what I ought to do and knowing to have no hesitation or reluctance in doing it seems to me to be heaven upon earth. And the man that has it needs but little more. This then is the reward. I think that, that he nails that concept, that if we, if we can just rest in this reality of God showing himself to us and being so close to him that he can, he can direct our path is such an amazing thing. You see, God's will can be divided into general and specific. Like God generally just, you know, generally has this thing that he wants for, for you know, in, in general, but very specific as well. He wants something very, very, very narrow at times as well. But here's the thing. In both of those, 
the general and specific will of God are the reward for those whose body and mind are offered to him and transformed. It's a submitted life that gets those. Not just anybody and everybody. You know, you, God is so gracious, he might just share his will from time to time. But if you want to consistently live this way then in the will of God, then it's going to take a submitted life before the Lord. See, a decluttered life from the things of this world can discern the will of God as he's placed it into them. So many times the reason we struggle with God's will is not because God isn't revealing it, it's because our lives are so filled with so much other stuff. There's so many other things competing for our time, competing for our minds, competing for our emotions, competing for our affections, competing for our money. There's so many things competing that, that our lives are cluttered with stuff. And because they're so cluttered with stuff, we don't know which way we should go. You see, what God promises is that your will will actually become his will as you're submitted to him. He'll actually put it in you. So God's will is qualified by three things. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. Good means that it's upright. It's honorable. It's always the right thing. God's will is always the right thing. That's God's never going to tell you personally what contradicts his word generally, right? God, God's never going to do that. Secondly, it's acceptable. It's, that means it's well-pleasing. Here's the idea. I hope you can grasp this the way I mean it. It's always what you actually want. God's will is always what you actually want. Now, you might think or feel like you want something else than what God wants, but his will is always what you actually want. That's really what it comes down to. It's acceptable. It's also perfect. That means complete or mature. It is purposeful. It is exact. It is precise. It's not just kind of loose and, well, we'll see how it all pans out. No, God is perfect in this. Now, even if you can't feel it, God is leading you and you can trust him. John chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus says this. He says, after he gathers his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. Jesus is referring to himself as the shepherd and you as the sheep. That if you belong to him, here's what he says, you know my voice. Jesus, Jesus promises this reality. He, he uses the shepherd sheep analogy for his relationship with his people. And he simply and clearly states that you know his voice. So stop complicating it. You know when God's leading you. You ever tried to do something that was wrong and you just felt the Holy Spirit saying, no, don't do that. He, he just, there's that check in your spirit. There's those roadblocks in the way. There's all this nonsense. You're trying to just clamor over it in order to keep doing what you want. You're resisting the will of God. That's what's happening in that moment. You're trying to push your will and not going with what God wants to have happen. Now, that doesn't mean that just because it's easy, it's the will of God. No, uh, just because there's difficulty and hardship doesn't mean that it's outside of the will of God. But, but what it does mean is that there's a difference between overcoming adversity and ignoring when God is not in this. There's a very, very big difference. You see, he gives you freedom to make lots and lots of decisions. What kind of socks do you want to wear? Do you think God has a will for that? Gray socks, black socks, white socks, no socks? What? I don't think God has a will for those kinds of things. What kind of house do you want to live in? What kind of job do you want to have? What, what, where do you want to move to? I, I don't know that God has a will for all of those kinds of things. Now, he might, 
There might be a time when God says, actually, I do. I want to intervene in this moment and say, you should do this. I'll give you an example. It's like with my kids. With my kids, what, what Micah and I have tried to do is, is our best to raise them with a biblical worldview. And now that most of them are teenagers, we, we sort of just kind of give them the opportunity to make decisions and sort of play referee along the way and try to help them say, well, if you make that choice, here's the consequences. Um, one of my girls... Uh, she was invited to a, uh, a Halloween party in, a few years ago. And uh, so Micah and I were faced with, what do we do? Do we tell her no? Do we tell her, well, so we, we just sat down and talked to her. And we said, well, I know you really want to go and, and you really like this friend. So why do you want to go to this party? Well, I just love this friend. It's going to be so fun. I said, okay, so what do you think is going to happen at this Halloween party? And she goes, I don't know. I goes, okay, so go ask your friend. Go, go talk to her. Go get some information. So she asked her friend, oh, they're going to watch scary movies and they're going to, uh, you know, I don't know what else. They're probably going to eat till they throw up some candy or something. But the candy part wasn't a big deal. But then she's like, I don't like scary movies. I really don't want to do that. I feel like that would be a bad thing for me to do. And so we gave her the choice. What are you going to do? And she made the option. She made the choice of saying, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to, I don't want to participate in the things that they're doing, even though she really wanted to hang out with her friend. You see, Micah and I had a will, but we wanted more for her to choose what she knew was right then we wanted her to have a will. It's, it's like, uh, you know, uh, we came, my wife and I, we came from uh, Southern California, moved here from Southern California. And uh, if you don't know anything about Southern California, you, you know, most of the time people wear sandals all the time. And so my kids were used to that. And so when winter came around in Colorado, I told them, you need to wear socks and shoes because that was my will for them. Now my will for them to wear socks and shoes was because it's cold, right? You can't just wear sandals at all times. And yet, uh, and so there might be times when something that seems obscure and like it's in your realm of being able to choose, all of a sudden God does have a choice. And he says, no, I do want you to wear socks today. And God does have a will. But in, in, in that, it's being submitted to him relationally. Knowing God's will is actually much more simple than we tend to make it. I'm gonna end with this. It's really just this simple. Love God and do whatever you want. It's actually that simple. Now, for some of you, all you heard was do whatever you want. <laughs> you got to do the first part first. And let me ask you this. If you're loving God and you're submitting your body to him and you're submitting your mind to him, then are you going to want what's sinful? Are you going to want what's harmful? Are you going to want what's damaging and hurtful and wasteful? Is that what you're going to want? You're not going to want it. God's actually going to put what he wants inside you. So love God and just do whatever you want. Here's the thing. Worst case scenario, you make a bad choice. And then what does God do? As a loving dad, he redirects your steps. He redirects your path. So amazing that God's able to do that. So move forward trusting in the facts beyond your feelings that God is with you, he is leading you, and you can trust him. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word today and just to think about your will. And we pray that, Lord, as we wrestle over this, uh, maybe now or in the future, about what your will is, that, God, you would help us to rest and in, in, in trust in you. That we know that you're good and that you're able and that you're God and that you have uh, in store for us the things that you want to accomplish. So, God, we love you. And we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.